You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of crafting one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. Hello, my name is Maria Amparo Escandon, and I am the author of the novel L.A. Weather. Maria Amparo Escandon is a New York Times bestselling bilingual author. Her third novel, L.A. Weather, is a Reese's Book Club pick and is featured on Oprah Quarterly, as well as a Best Book of the Month in Barnes & Noble, People, CNN, E! News, and more. Her first novel, Esperanza's Box of Saints, and its Spanish version, Santitos, has been the number one bestseller in the Los Angeles Times bestsellers list. It has 21 foreign editions and has been read in over 86 countries. Her books have been chosen as the annual book selection for several Community Reads public library-funded projects like One City, One Book, and A Novel Idea. Many of her short stories have been published in journals and magazines, both in English and Spanish, and she has taught numerous creative writing courses and workshops at UCLA Extension since 1994. In L.A. weather, Los Angeles is parched, dry as a bone, and all Oscar, the weather-obsessed patriarch of the Alvarado family, desperately wants is a little rain. He's harboring a costly secret that distracts him from everything else. His wife, Keela, desperate for a life with a little more intimacy and a little less weather channel, feels she has no choice but to end their marriage. Their three daughters, Claudia, a television chef with a hard-hearted attitude, Olivia, a successful architect who suffers from gentrification guilt, and Patricia, a social media wizard who has an uncanny knack for connecting with audiences, but not with her lovers, are blindsided and left questioning everything they know. Each will have to take a critical look at her own relationships and make some tough decisions along the way. With quick wit and humor, Maria Amparo Escandon follows the Alvarado family as they wrestle with impending evacuations, secrets, deception, and betrayal, and their toughest decision yet, whether to stick together or burn it all down. I got the idea for LA weather while I was living in New York. Interesting, right? Well, for some reason, I met quite a few New Yorkers who told me very assuredly, there is no weather in LA. And I said, well, this is a trope I must debunk. (laughs) So that's exactly what I did. I said, I'm going to start writing a novel about the weather in Los Angeles, and I will have in the forefront a family a Latino family. This Latino family is very much like my family. I have lived in the United States for 38 years, and I have seen a lot of Latino stories, Latino movies and TV series and books, but not all of them present a picture of what my particular family looks like. So I wanted to write a story that sort of represents my family. I come from a Mexican-American family. We have ancestors who lived in California when it was still Mexico. I'm married to a Jew, a Mexican-French Jew. And we don't see a lot of those people in the stories. And so I said, well, you know what? I, I want to address that also. I want to write about a little bit of a different Mexican-American family. It was very interesting. I've gotten a lot of different reactions, but one of them that I think is interesting and accurate is the one that Alex Espinosa, a professor from UC Riverside, told me. He said, you know, LA weather is a story that really complicates our views about Latinos. Well, when I heard that, I said, 
Yep, that's it. I started writing LA Weather in 2016, which is the year I was in New York. I have no schedule. I just write whenever I feel like. I have that thing that is kind of disorganized. Uh, I'm not a methodical at all. Uh, sometimes life gets in the way and I can go weeks without writing a single word. And then I get really carried away and I write, you know, uh, 100 pages in a weekend. <laughs> so it's, uh, there's really no, um, no method for my writing. I do listen to my inner voice and if I feel like I'm stuck, I just go do something else. This is what I call embracing writer's block. I really embrace it because I think it's just my head telling me, you know, stop, go do something else, live your life and come back and then we'll see if we can pick up on where we left off. That's kind of what I do. I don't have a routine either like I you know I wake up in the morning and have my coffee and put on my magic slippers and I start writing I don't do that I write whenever I can I write on a plane I write uh, you know uh, pretty much never at my desk <laughs> I don't know I it feels weird to write in the same place where you pay your bills it's kind of like left brain right brain so i always have to find a different place that is far away from my checkbook and you know so that i can forget about the chores and the things i have to do and just have fun with my own my own mind so i do that that's part of the way i go about writing i always tell my students at ucla i say you know if you're a writer you're writing 24-7 because you may be at the grocery store and you're writing, you're thinking about your characters, you're driving, you're thinking about your characters, you're writing. Then when you get home and your office and you take out your computer and start typing, that's typing. It's like downloading your story and putting it into proper words in written language. But really, really the creative process happens in your mind and it happens all the time. I live with my characters. We actually, you know, share a life all the time. <laughs> That's how it is. One of the big challenges that I had when writing LA Weather, and it started happening in the first draft, was I decided to write the story in the form of a calendar year. I have 12 chapters. Each chapter is a month, January to December. Very easy, right? And then within each chapter, I wrote several entries depending on the day. And this created an obstacle for me to go crazy with the narration and, you know, elaborate because I was restrained by the format, the calendar format. So I had to work extra hard to let the story flow even if it was on different days, different characters, and then different months. But it was very helpful to do an actual calendar. So I printed this huge calendar and put it on the wall every month. And I had my characters uh, had their own color. They, they had different Sharpies with different colors. And I wrote what each character did on which day of the week and the month and the year. And so I could follow 
by color the whole storyline of each of the characters. And because it's a family with the mom, the dad, three married daughters with their husbands, three grandkids, one nanny, it gets complicated, right? It's a big family. So it was super helpful for me to do this calendar. And it helped me overcome the challenge of breaking up the narration as it went by the days. I mean, there were some days, some entries where not much happened. So I had to be real quick and say nothing happened and then go to the next day, <laughs> you know. The thing with keeping a, an actual calendar on the wall of my office was that every time I had to make a change in the manuscript, I had to also make the change in the calendar. So I was doing dual revisions, but in the end, it was very helpful to do it and be very persistent about that because at the end, in the final manuscript, I had an updated calendar that was very helpful in narrating the story of each character. I was in New York when I was writing about LA, so <laughs> so I used a lot of a lot of Google, a lot of Google Maps. I went in because I write about a lot of the neighborhoods and the streets. And I really wanted to make sure that all of that was accurate. So I would go in and check online, working at a distance out of memory, because I have lived in LA for so long. I was only four years in New York. And it's so interesting to see LA from a distance. And and really, it's not like, a, a, you know, you're going to use a telescope to look at LA. You have to look at it through a kaleidoscope because it's so colorful and different and so many interpretations and you know how LA is it's so diverse and interesting and surprising and so I really had a lot of fun researching online and also using my memory to put the story together and because it's placed in 2016 I was able to just go back to 2016 and research everything that happened day by day, day by day. For instance, it's a Jewish holiday and that day Prince died. And so I include Prince because I'm a Prince fan. But the thing about research, and I've done this with my other novels and I love research, it has to be invisible. Because in fiction, you're not allowed to put a footnote, you know, and say, by the way, you know, <laughs> as I was writing, I would stop and say, okay, I need to research this. So I would stop research and then come up with a few links that I would copy and paste onto documents and continue one by one, page by page. So basically, it was like driving at night. Whatever my headlights could see, that was my page. And I knew where I wanted to go, but I didn't know if I was going to encounter obstacles along the way. But I wanted to research as I went. So that's how it worked. I was halfway writing the first draft when I realized that Oscar, the father, was my dad. It was so intuitive and so it wasn't deliberate at all. And when I realized, my God, I'm writing my dad. This is my dad. It was a, a, a surprise. And I, I embraced it. I love that. I thought it was a nice little trick that my mind played on me. <laughs> it took me about a year uh, to finish the first draft. And I like to share 
a complete first draft, the one I'm happy with, I like to share it with two alpha readers and two beta readers. And I call alpha readers people who I trust, who are in the publishing business. So one of them is my agent and another one is an editor that I have worked with. They are professionals. And so they will give me input tell me, you know, this is not working or you need to, you know, grow this character. He's so interesting and you barely mention him, you know, things like that, you know, and and I listen. I really, you know, I really like their their feedback. The beta readers are people who are avid readers, friends of mine who I trust, who are not in the industry, who are not in the publishing business. They're not writers. They're not, they're just readers. But they're good readers, people who really like books. And they will give me completely different feedback from the alpha readers. And so once I have all four opinions, I go back and work on a second draft based on their input. Every draft gets easier because now you have resolved most of the issues. And now you're just fixing, cleaning, editing, adding, deleting and forming the story and just fine-tuning everything. So second, third, fourth draft probably takes a couple of months each. So by the end of the second year, I had a complete draft that my agent was happy to show to publishers. But there was a lot of editing and a lot of adding stuff, deleting, changing. So it's really hard work, but I always tell my students at UCLA, you need to write with both ends of the pencil. (laughs) So don't fall in love with your first draft. (laughs) The final draft, I believe was the fourth before we submitted to publishers. I'm very fortunate to have an amazing agent. We're great friends and I love her. I've been working with her for over 20 years, ever since she sold my first novel, Esperanza's Box of Saints. And the good thing is that she's also an editor. She really has been super patient with me because English is not my native language. And I struggle even today after 38 years living in the U.S., (laughs) struggle with words like in, on, at... So she's very patient. If I make a mistake and I put in where it should be on, she will fix that problem. And for me, it's life-saving because I'd be super embarrassed to present the manuscript with that kind of mistakes. But the truth of the matter is, I still find it very mysterious when to use which one. (laughs) This really releases me from being worried about the grammar and just be able to focus in the story. And I know that she's gonna pick up on all those little mistakes and that's what an editor is for. That's when somebody's gonna take care of that. You don't need to worry about that right now. You just focus on the story. And so we work together on just making the novel pristine and perfect before anybody else sees it in the publishing business. So no publisher will see a manuscript that is not perfect. You know, I want to send them a novel that is 
pretty much ready for print. Of course, they need to put in their two cents and there's further work. There is a fifth draft, but the draft that I deliver is a draft that I say, you know, this is ready for printing. When she said, I'm comfortable submitting this draft, I said, do you love it? Yes, I love it. Okay, I love it too. So we're ready. Yes, we're ready. So what's the strategy, right? And the strategy was, I am going to submit to the 12 top publishing houses. And once we get rejected, then we'll go to the next tier down and then the next tier and the next tier until somebody's going to say yes. Don't worry. Somebody's going to say yes. So that was the strategy. And luckily, the first tier was very well, you know, very receptive. And uh, we did get an offer from Flat Iron Books. I received a beautiful love letter from the editor and uh, we accepted their offer right away. It really took about a month, the whole process. It was fantastic. Once we signed the deal and we started working with the editor at Flat Iron, my publisher was very worried about not offending anybody with my novel. They really were taking very good care and they really wanted a novel that wouldn't hurt people and so they wanted to clean it up and take out anything that might be offensive for instance she didn't want the character that was the nanny there's a nanny who takes care of the three-year-old twins and she didn't feel like it was a good thing to have a nanny in the story because it was colonialist, some sort of a magical Negro character. This is a family who lives in Brentwood, who is well off. The mother has a profession. She's a career architect. She needs to work with a nanny. And for me, it was natural for the nanny to be there, not only because of the job that she was supposed to do, but because I wanted to have characters that were Latino, but the full spectrum, everybody. I wanted representation. And taking out the nanny would take out a whole section of my community. I really wanted to represent my community at large and have a bit of everybody. So there are farm workers, uh, there is the nanny, there is a volunteer, there is a ultrasound technician, there is the professionals, the architects, the, the chef, the cooks. There was a void and it didn't make sense. So I guess we worked it out eventually. The nanny stayed and <laughs> I actually she's one of my favorite characters. I love her because she's just tough and has a lot of agency and she doesn't. I mean, she's very much like an aunt I have who I love. <laughs> you know, I model a lot of my characters after people I know, of course, and I really like these characters. So I'm happy that we were able to come to terms with the idea and there she is. But um, I'm not alone in these. There are other authors, you know, suffering from these sort of sensitivity readers and, you know, people scrutinizing their work for triggers and things like that. And sometimes it's good, but other times I think it's just a bit much. Fortunately, you know, I'm very happy with my publisher and everything worked out and we're happy. <laughs>
The copy editing was very interesting because I did a lot of research with this novel. As a matter of fact, every weather event that I write about in the novel actually happened. If I say it rained that day, it did rain that day. If I say there was a full moon, there was a full moon. So I really researched it. All the fires that I write about are real. And I use the real names and I use the real casualties and acres burned, all of that. So the copy editor had to really go in and confirm that everything was accurate. So that was a big deal. Also, because this is LA, the characters are always either driving or eating. And so, <laughs> so there's a lot of food and there's a lot of freeways and they're either driving or eating or driving and eating. And so the whole thing about, you know, how do you call the freeways? Is it the 405 or is it the Santa Monica freeway or is it the San Diego freeway or the, you know, so all of that had to be corroborated. So there were a lot of questions and a lot of, you know, checking things and double checking things so that it would be accurate. But in the end, everything was answered and resolved and it went really well. The cover art. What uh, happened is the publisher asked me, do you have anything in mind? And I had read a New Yorker article about the fires in Southern California. And there was this really, really shocking photograph of the fire coming in down the hill and in the forefront, there is a swimming pool. And I said, well, that's sort of the idea of the novel because, you know, everybody thinks that in LA, we all have these blissful lives and we live like celebrities and everything is wonderful. And that's really far from reality, we have a lot of drama <laughs> also, just like anybody else in the world. And this was the idea of here's a pool, which is a symbol of fun and relax and all this, but then there's this big fire approaching. So I told them, you know, I really like this picture, but it appeared in the New Yorker. So I don't know if it's available. So they went and they looked it up and they talked to the photographer and they were able to license it for the cover. And there it is. I'm going to tell you a little scene that happened. I was in a panel and I got asked, you know, if there was any advice that I would tell aspiring writers. It was a university, so I said, okay, raise your hand, those of you who are aspiring writers. Oh, and a bunch of people raised their hands. And I said, okay, now, so raise your hand, those of you who are writing something, who have a project and are working on it. Same people raise their hands. And I said, okay, then you're not aspiring. You're already writing. And so... <laughs> It was my way of telling them, you know, an aspiring writer is somebody who wish they could write or wish they would sit down and write or have maybe explored maybe a couple of lines. I mean, I've had people say, oh, I, I, I was going to write a novel, but I got a page 10 and dropped it. You know, it's like going to the gym. You're not going to lift 150 pounds on the first day you show up at the gym. You start with the little dumbbells and you work your way up, right? 
But don't say that, you know, you failed at writing a novel when you've never written anything else. So there aren't really aspiring writers. If you have a project, you're not an aspiring writer. You are actually a writer. And now a reading from L.A. Weather. This is a little passage about Patricia, the youngest of the three daughters of the Alvarado family. Precisely at 10.47 p.m., Patricia went outside to smoke a joint. Her path lit up by the full moon. She lay on one of the lounge chairs around the cement keloid scar, bundled up in her adored old comfy Mexican wool sweater from Chicon Quack, the kind that Marilyn Monroe used to wear, and looked up to the sky. What was that longing, she felt? It seemed to her that Eric had a very limited bandwidth when it came to feelings. He was basically transactional, so that she sometimes felt life with him was like having a sexual relationship with her bank teller, if she ever dealt with one anymore, as she banked only on her phone these days. Their intellectual and sexual connection was satisfying, but his emotional bite count was low. She felt shortchanged by the universe and looking up at the moon only made it worse. Why did Earth only get one moon, while other planets had so many? And why doesn't our moon have a sexy name, like Elara or Ananke? Just moon. It was like having a dog and naming him Dog. The Right Process is hosted and curated by me, Charlie Jensen. This season was produced by Jamie Moss. The Writer's Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.